Hello, Bill. Good morning, Matt. Welcome to the DMZ, everybody. Uh, did you do an all-nighter? I did an all-nighter, so I'm definitely a little fried. Not an all-nighter, but a late-nighter, and uh, not not great. Not great, Bill. Um, it was... I, we talk about debates being shit shows <laughs> or being... But this one really was really bad. And 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 I say this a lot, but this time I really mean it. Like, I, I would not have watched this unless I had to, unless I was getting paid to watch it. That is how bad this was. Even if you're a political junkie, maybe especially if you're a political junkie, this was super bad. I, I'll go into detail on what I thought was bad. But, Bill, um, what was your... Uh, I guess, what was your initial response? Well, to be frank with you, I made the decision early on that the debate last night wasn't the main event. And I, I watched some of it, but I did not watch it start to finish. I can't remember the last time I didn't watch a debate. I think, you made the, I think you made the right call. I actually do. And and it seems uh, sacrilegious to say that, right? It, it You and I, I think... There are, there are a lot of podcasts out there, too many podcasts probably. And, and you know, there's <laughs> podcasts with legal experts and economics people. And, you know, we kind of do the horse race. We debates are kind of our Super Bowl sometimes. But um, this one, so it could be it could be seen as, as a, an abdication of responsibility. I actually think you made the right call. And uh, at one point, Nikki Haley said to uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, Something, something to the effect of like the more I listen to you, the dumber I I get. Yeah, and uh, I think that's how that that sums up the debate, kind of. Well, that is the problem with that. Man, I did catch that line, uh, and one, it felt like, okay, you're going back to the same well. You 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 got you got a good, you got a lot of mileage out of taking a slap at Vivek last time, and now you're going back to the same playbook, and that's kind of, you know. Uh, uninspired like it it was it was a, there's a little bit of punching up which she did the first time and you know she and she got you know an okay bump out of that and and actually in the real clear politics average she's a little bit ahead of vivek now she's in third place to vivek's fourth and so now it kind of felt like now you're kind of punching down like we all know he is like an idiot we all know he's got no business being on the stage like you you successfully made that clear the first time around like we get it now you move up the chain and you you take on the person who's actually in your way, Donald Trump. Uh, well, that, that's We'll get to that, but that doesn't happen. Um, did not happen, does not happen. And it happened. There were some glancing blows. Chris Christie tried to go after Trump for not being there. Right. And had this very lame line about Donald Duck, presumably having to do with ducking debates. Right. Did not I, work. I think that could have worked. There was a there was a way that could have worked. Well, I like I like the concept of going after Trump and basically calling him a wimp for not being there. And I understand his name is Donald. He's yeah. ducking the debates. Donald Duck. I don't think that there was a way for that line to land. But do you disagree? I, I it it had to seem ad libbed. Okay, if it was planned. It had to it had to come more naturally, uh, given an opportunity at some point. It, 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 he clearly did it as like a prepared statement. I'm gonna. This is when my coaches told me to look at the camera and give the spiel yeah. and close with the Donald Duck, and that's gonna be put in the. I mean, I 
I mean, you know, I'm in Western Massachusetts. I am getting on Hulu regularly super pack ads for Christie and for Haley. Uh, and I assume they bought some some time intended to to reach New Hampshire, Southern New Hampshire, and then I'm getting caught in that in that media market. Uh, and both of those super pack ads use debate footage. Uh, that's a way you basically can cut footage for an independent operation without having to like stand in a studio, which you can't because you can't coordinate. So I'm sure that was the the plan to have something that would go into an, a yeah. super pack ad, but like it was so much more clunky and obviously staged. Doing it's not that good a line. Donald Duck is not that good that you could say it in any context and it's funny. If it was kind of it like you kind of tossed it off, you can made it up on the spot. Like maybe it would be like a pretty good line, but like not the way he did it. Well, and I think Christie overall has been something of a disappointment. Um, he's a good debater. We knew he would be a good debater. I actually think he has underperformed expectations. Well, his expectations um, were so high, probably yeah. because he set them high. And he had really no choice otherwise, because he's because otherwise he starts so low in, in polls. But he needs Trump to be there to make that magic happen. And he's not there. So there's only so much he can do. Well, I think what he could do is go more after Trump harder and more viciously every chance he gets instead of once or twice during the debate. But look, you know, it's tough because, again, I think he was the goal was to goad Trump into being the debate. I thought they could do that. Bill, you did not think that would work. You turned out to be right. And I think I think it's a smart move by Trump. Bill, by the end of the night last night, I'm thinking maybe the guy who was indicted four times. Is the better candidate? Maybe, maybe I'm for. Maybe I'm for the guy who incited the insurrection. Maybe he's better than these other people. Well, he might be as far as like political performing is concerned. Uh, did anyone last night mention the fraud verdict? I look. You know how it goes, Bill. Uh, we hear through a glass darkly, <laughs> as well as see. I you know. I'm. I'm like. Uh, I got a lot of stuff going on, not to mention the Orioles are now, you know, simultaneously, you know, closing out uh, their season. Uh, I did not hear it come up. Um, Maybe it did. I will tell you, if it did, it was brief. Like there was not a long prosecution of Donald Trump and his many ill. Like like, that was not a, a... major factor in this debate. Christy want to do a set piece. I mean, I mean, this is the argument, you know, we already know he's been indicted four times. We already know we run the risk of having a literal felon be our nominee. Now we know his entire argument for being president in the first place was based on a lie. He's not even a good businessman. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying that's like the perfect verbiage, but that, that's the kind of fodder that Christie could really do wonders with. Yeah. Uh, and to not take that on and just do the he, he can't show up, which is always the whiniest, lamest argument. Yeah, uh, he's not sure because he doesn't need to because he is lapping you. So you're calling more attention to that to that fact. Meanwhile, Vivek showed up with an interesting strategy. He clearly wanted to reintroduce himself as a kinder, gentler Vivek. So he showed, and here's my my take on it: is he shows up at the first debate, attacks everybody on the stage. And gets the bump from that, benefits from that, exploits. 
I, I quibble, I'd quibble with that part, but go on. Okay. So I think he benefited from it, but I think clearly also it was a double-edged sword, right? It must have shown that he was annoying people and that, uh, so I think what he was trying to do was sort of the, um, you know, how like after a, a candidate says and does what they have to do to win the nomination, they then uh, come to the center. And I think Vivek's second debate, he was trying to pivot to a kinder, gentler Vivek. Um, and he starts off by saying how everyone on the stage, they're all good people. They all, have to, you know, it's like, OK, last debate, you said that they were all on the take, that they were all like in the pocket of special interests. Now you're praising them all. And at one point, he even had this sort of, uh, you know, soliloquy where he's like, look, I know what you all think of me. I'm the new guy here. You, you think I'm a young guy in a hurry uh, that I'm overly ambitious. You know, he like sort of goes through this like Mia culpa. Um, but the other candidates were having none of it, Bill. And they would not let him make this pivot to nice guy. And uh, they uh, they punished him. We talked about Nikki Haley's. Well, but they should not. Like, if your goal for the debate was to take out the guy in third place and now fourth place, like, that's not a good debate strategy. Uh, he is not the obstacle to anybody. He's he's an annoyance. He's a distraction. Uh, I mean, the, the the good part of Haley's performance the first time was that she was the one person to sort of call that out. Uh, and Vivek, he got an attention bump out of the first debate. But not a poll bump, uh, and that's the thing that no, I think I, he did. I'm I think sorry. he did. He 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 would have been like one percent, right, or something. Now he's well, at like four percent. I mean, I'm not he, saying it's he he rose ahead of the debate, which is yeah. why he got he he got positioned as well as he did at that point. I mean, the, the last debate was I think August twenty seventh. Sounds about right. So real clear politics, he was at 7.4 on August 27th. Uh, by September 5th, a week later, he was down to 7.0. Uh, by September 11th, he was the same. And then it's, he's basically kind of kicking around seven. He actually goes back up briefly to 8.1 September 21st. And then he drops since then, because now we're on September 28th. Now he's at Somehow he went from like 8.1 to 5.1 in the last week. I'm sure there's some, some oddball poll number that kind of screwed that average. But basically, for the most part, he ticks slightly downward from August 27th through September 9th from 7.4 to 6.6. Whereas Haley, Haley on August 27th was 4.6, and she goes up to five point she goes up to six by September eleventh. She then goes down a little bit and now is back and does at five point eight. Yeah. I mean, we're talking really minor movements here. Like to say Haley had a bump is being very generous. Well I look you know you and your damn lies, damn lies and statistics <laughs> and your numbers. Vivek dominated the conversation for yes. me. Well, this yeah, attention economy that matters. But let me say well, I think you're you're probably right in the sense that uh, he he doesn't deserve to be the center of two debates, but they can't attack Trump and get away with it. And number one, Trump's not there. Number two, Trump would destroy them. They can take on Vivek as a sort of surrogate battle. Right. I mean, this guy, it's a psychological thing, Bill. I'm not saying it makes strategic sense, but if you're Mike Pence or Nikki Haley 
or Chris Christie, and you've been toiling in these you know fields for a decade or more, and you've paid your dues, and then this whippersnapper comes along and tries to you know accuse you of being you know in the pockets of special interests, and then thinks he can like make nice all of a sudden. You hate him, and oh, I'm, uh, I'm sure the hate is genuine, and I'm sure the hate is yeah. deserved, but. I think, I think Vivek welcomes their hate. I think Vivek made this pivot because he got all this media attention at the first debate, and it doesn't translate into poll numbers for him. So it, that's it's got to force him into a soul searching, you know, committee meeting. What, what what went wrong here? Why didn't we? Why didn't we? What did this translate? And the reason is like, do you said anybody liked what they saw? Those people are already with Trump. They they, they wasn't arguing to. To abandon Trump, it was like this guy would be a great partner with Trump. Haley got a little bit of a bump because she made a case that was uh, for being an alternative to Trump. Uh, she just has a. Well, I don't think he's of- running to really win anyway, right? He's running for attention and buzz, and so he got what he's in it for. But to the degree that you're right, to the degree that he tried to pivot and uh, reintroduce himself, rebrand. They wouldn't let it happen. Yeah. He tried it and they would not let it happen. And it was all of them, basically, who stopped it. Um, Mike Pence had some weird moments, uh, a cringe inducing. I don't know if you saw this, Bill. The teacher uh, thing? The teacher thing. It's, it's about, the teacher thing. Yeah. Well, Chris Christie had said something about how Joe Biden is not going to stand up to the teachers' unions. He's been sleeping with a member of the teachers' union, something like that. Which is also, also cringe. I thought that was a weird line in, a, in and of itself. Um, but then uh, Mike Pence, and this wasn't spur of the moment. This was like he had time to think about it. He waited, he waited till it was his moment. And then he unchambered the, uh, I've also been sleeping with the teacher for 37 <laughs> years, something like that. Bill, I think. Um, See, if he said I was sleeping with a, a non-unionized teacher, that would have been a better line. No, he did, he, did, he did point out that she's not a union member. Okay, he okay. Did, he did say that, but I don't think it was – I think you could have delivered the line better. In this, in this <laughs> case, I think there was a better way to deliver that line. Um, and, of course, this spurred, you know, hot for the teacher, you know, memes and all that. But um, fundamentally, horrible debate. There's always moments where people are talking over each other. Um, and there's crosstalk. But this time there were numerous instances where it lasted for 30 seconds or something. I, I did enjoy the Haley Scott crosstalk. Just, it, it has no bearing on who is going to be the nominee and probably no bearing is going to be the VP. Uh, just knowing that there is this underlying uh, uh, I don't know, hatred, disgust or what between the, the two most prominent South Carolina politicians. Yeah. Which is interesting. Uh, exactly. you know, there, there's so much like weirdness here and hypocrisy, right? Like not only is everyone on the stage complicit to some degree or another in Trump's sins, but like Nikki Haley gave Vivek a glowing blurb on the back of his Woke Inc. book. And then Nikki Haley appointed Tim Scott to his Senate seat. You know, I mean, it's like they're all it's so incestuous. And now they're going at it. And I think there's this macho thing, Bill, where when people are interrupting, if you're the now it's like a game of chicken. If you're the one who stops and you let the other person keep talking, they kind of win. So nobody's willing to stop. So everyone just keeps talking 
hoping the other person will stop. And it really got out of hand. And I have to say, I mean, I'm a very big fan of Dana Perino. Um, Like, I think she's a genuinely good person, one of the best people in the business. Um, But I would say all the moderators in general, it was not, it it was bad. Uh, Stuart Varney was horrific. They had a Univision uh, person that was actually kind of hard to understand who was asking questions about that should have been like an MSNBC debate. I mean, it's the whole reason that the Republican Party quit doing like MSNBC or, you know, debate. Uh, it was very, very bad and very weird. Um, and uh, that's that's all I have to say about that. Well, I mean, I, I think we've had this argument in past cycles, but I, I think the Republican Party decision, the RNC decision <clears throat> to only have like, team players be debate hosts. I mean, the fact that it was Fox News slash Univision was like a slight wrinkle in the in, in what is now the pound. Like, we we don't do CNN. We don't do MSNBC. We don't do CNBC. We don't do NBC yeah. News. We don't do ABC. They ask us mean questions, and so we're not going to do that anymore. Uh, I don't think that's very useful. I mean, this, this, beyond what, what's sort of right and proper, I don't think it's useful to the Republican Party to cocoon themselves to this degree in this process. You need to expose your candidates to what like the outside world is like. So you you know what you're going to get uh, in a general election. Yeah. And the, but there's like genuine anger. I think I, I forget. Was, I saw someone, maybe it was Matt Gates, somebody on Twitter who was in the Republican Party was, you know, angry, like how we, we had to go back and fix, RNC needs to stop having, you know, people like Fox News hosting the debates. These need to go to Newsmax or OAN or Joe Rogan. No, somebody. Yeah, I, I agree with you, generally speaking. Um, like, I don't think George Stephanopoulos should really be hosting a Republican debate. But generally speaking, I, I agree with you. I will say this debate was really, the, the moderators were really bad, I think, for two reasons. One is they kept trying to move on. So like every once in a while, there would be a fight about something. And it might be a substantive thing that they're fighting over. And there'd be crosstalk. And then the moderators would be like, okay, let's now let's turn to farm policy. You know what I mean? And it's like, mm-hmm. wait a second. Like, okay, yes, you need to stop the crosstalk. But like, shouldn't we find out like the denouement? Like, shouldn't we like, we've been arguing over this for a minute or two. And now you just need to change subjects because you've got like a list of 20 things you want to boxes you want to check to get through. There's like a rush to constantly move on to the next subject. Let them hash it out a little bit. That was, I think a disservice. And I think this, this is a big problem. Interviewers have a lot of times, like when they interview someone like Trump, but I, I felt it with the debate, like, let it breathe. If there's a substantive fight going on, yes, you have to stop the crosstalk. Yes, you have to reassert control, but you don't have to just move on. Like, okay, uh, let's go now to Mike Pence. Well, to be, I, mean, I think debate moderation is genuinely hard. There's a lot of cross pressures on you. There are people that want you to get to all these different issues, people that want you to not have crosstalk. People that want you to have crosstalk and have these things, you know, air out. Uh, people that want to make sure you're giving even time to everybody. Um, and so there's a lot of, uh, you know, game time, audible type decisions you have to make in the moment 
while weighing all these competing factors. It's not easy, which is why you should have people who have had a lot of practice moderating debates at a lower level and not just throwing like who, who, whose turn is it? You know, Fox is doing every single debate. How do we get every single person in the building to have a turn of the debate? Like I don't yeah. think the printers moderated debate before. I mean, I'm sure I'm just a lovely person. Well, and Here's the other thing too, Bill, along those lines. Okay. When Brett Baer and Martha McCollum have a rapport and they're sort of a team and they've done these debates together They've done a few big presidential debates together, but like this was like a non sequitur, like Stuart Varney. He's like Fox business. Right. He doesn't like I know Dana Perino has like a morning news show on Fox where she's got a male partner and then she's on the five. She's got a rapport with those people. And then they introduced this Univision character. I don't even know who this person is. <laughs> it's like a complete it's apropos of nothing. Well, drop this person by the RNC that they you have to win Latino voters, and so they need to have some Latino representation in these. No chemistry, no rapport. It it was. It's just. It's as you mentioned, Bill. It's hard enough to do this. How about some people who've had a couple reps together who, who know each? It's going to be hard enough. It, It was. It was not good. Maybe Fox should have a Latino anchor on their network. Do they? Yeah, I'm sure they do. I bet you they do. <laughs> they have. I know they have at some point. Um, but it was it, it was bad, Bill. And I feel like um, you were right that Trump uh, wouldn't do the debates. And again, now I think Trump was right not to do it. Like this made me yearning for Donald Trump because if nothing else, he's entertaining. Like the, this wasn't fun to watch with the, with the exception of the I did enjoy, you know, the beating up of the vague that that I, I took some perverse pleasure in, especially Nikki Haley doing it. But otherwise, not a uh, not a good hang, not a good. <laughs> well, the thing I, I by the way, let me just say this. Sure. Why does it start? I realize it's at, at Simi Valley, the Reagan presidential library. This thing. Starts at 9 p.m. Eastern. Why does yeah, everything yeah, have to start? It's like with, with sports. It's all for the West Coast yeah. people. Um, but here's a, I want to go back to something about Trump, though. Um, you know, in the back of my mind, I wondered, would there be a point in this primary process where the field would winnow down and it would get down to like two, three, or four people, and there was a, a really clear number two who was making some ground and narrowing the gap with Trump where Trump would say, okay, I really got it. Now I, it's close enough now. Maybe this would be good theater. Maybe I, 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 there'd be more pressure on me. I, I got, I got to do one to deal with it at this stage of the game. But no one's breaking out here. This is, they're, they're all just, you know, the pack of six-year-olds chasing the same soccer ball, uh, and Trump is coasting at you know forty, fifty-point margins. Uh, so the way we're the way we're going, there's really no reason for Trump to really have this debate, have, have a primary debate. In fact, as I wrote for the Washington Monthly today, he was in a debate last night. It just was with, with Joe Biden. And he he pivoted. Mm. By the way, that was a couple, it was like a week or so ago when um, Donald Trump, we talked about this last week, Donald Trump started to moderate his abortion position. He's pivoting for the general election. Yeah, although I would call us a centrist pivot. But, but I mean, he he doesn't 
this primary, no, normally if you're in a primary, you have to focus on the primary. He's past that, right? Oh, not, not only is a general election pivot to go to Michigan and talk to uh, auto workers, uh, it is really specific about a particular battleground state with a particular constituency about a particular issue. Uh, it is a substantive issue. I'm not saying Trump is handling it in a sophisticated, factual way, uh, but it's a real complicated issue. How does the auto industry deal with the rise of electric vehicles? It is one of the key sticking points in the in, in the negotiations between the UAW and the big three. Uh, Biden plays you know, an indirect role in this. You know, some people were criticizing Biden for getting involved. You know, president should not get in the middle of. Labor, labor management negotiations, but his policies have bearing on the challenges that the auto workers have with the, with with their with their bosses, uh, and so he has a direct interest in helping navigate that. Uh, but Trump is so. What? Okay, let me let me jump in real quick, Bill. Sure. I think the policies would be it takes. Um, so Biden, I know, for example, that Biden has has mandated state, local and, and federal fleets begin transitioning to zero emissions vehicles right. um, in the next couple of years. So uh, that's just one example the, the, the of how, new purchases. Yeah. for new. Yeah, so that's one example of how Biden's policies could affect someone in Michigan who's in the auto industry. So my understanding is it takes fewer people to make an electric vehicle than it does to make. There's fewer parts involved, fewer and less less labor needed. And they could uh, potentially do them in South Carolina. Well, that's the, other, a, the other part is that I love the, there's the so-called battery belt, uh, which runs like North Carolina through Georgia. So you have all these newer plants being right made. Right-to-work states. Right-to-work states, non-union labor, uh, you know. And it's one thing the UAW was upset about over the summer is that the Biden administration uh, gave a loan to Ford to partner with, uh, I believe, a Korean company on a few new of these plants uh, in Kentucky and uh, one other state. Uh, and those plant with no conditions, there's no condition on this loan money that has to be union labor, or that has to be certain wage floors or things like that. Uh, so UAW was openly critical of the Biden administration in June over this. Uh, so you know, they're partly um, having this partial strike over wanting wages to be increased, but it's also partly how are we going to uh, have guidelines and standards around this battery manufacturing so union labor gets uh, their just uh, piece of the pie. Uh, and I'm not saying I know what the sweet spot is for Biden to get the auto workers and the executives on the same page, but he has been directly involved with the executives to uh, agree uh, to the emission standards and to work with these battery plants. And, 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 and so on top of having the higher emission standards, which incentivizes the automakers to produce the new cars, he has the tax credits that consumers get for buying the cars. Uh, so it, you know, Trump calls this a mandate. It's not a mandate. It's a lot of incentives. Uh, but obviously accelerate and 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 the technology is is good technology. The people 
don't love pumping gas at a gas station. I mean, you and I, you, you always said, Matt, why should Democrats wag their finger at Uber? Like, this is just good technology. It's easier to hail a cab on your phone than waving your hand in the street. It's better. Well, to that's before I lived in West on. Virginia. What's that's that? before I moved to West Virginia, Bill. Good <laughs> luck with the Uber. Right. Fair enough. <laughs> but like, it's more convenient to plug your car in at night than to go to a gas station. Now, there's a challenge with the long distance driving, but we are advancing our charging station infrastructure. It's not exactly where it needs to be, but the progress is being made. Transitions are always a little uncomfortable, but we're on the right track with it. So the the future thinking person is going to say, electric cars are the future, fossil fuels are the past. Let's figure out how to prepare for the future. The auto workers, the union is in that space. Now, what they think involves a just transition doesn't neatly line up with what the auto executives think is, is a useful transition. That's where the tension is. Here comes Trump arguing, this whole thing is stupid. Electric cars are stupid. They're going to kill the auto industry. They're going to kill your jobs. It's all going to help. And China. it's China. Right. And it's coming, you know, this is going to help China. China has got the batteries, uh, all that. Right. And which for, he doesn't mention Tesla because you know, China's already the problem here. It's that Tesla is the dominant player in electric cars and they and Elon is feebly anti-union. He doesn't have any union labor uh, in his company. He's not using union labor in these battery plants. Like that's the bigger direct challenge here. But Elon's is is still in good standing with conservatives. So he's not going to go out of maybe maybe Trump's erratic enough that he will eventually, but it certainly isn't yet. Uh, so on one hand. There is discontent with the UAW how Biden has handled the battery issue, the electric vehicle issue so far, but they're not in alignment with Trump and saying, forget this whole thing. The UAW leadership is saying, we know this is the future. Let's have a plan for the future that benefits us and the people making these cars. Uh, Trump is trying effectively to divide the rank and file UAW members from their leadership's strategy because he doesn't need to win all of the auto workers. Uh, he needs to get a, a, enough of the auto workers. Uh, and he's saying, he's going through the motion thing, I want the endorsement, although he was on Newsmax last night and was asked, well, you know, Sean Fain, the UAW president, he's not going to meet with you. And then Trump says, well, then I don't like him. Like he, I think he knows he's not getting that endorsement, but he'd love it if Biden didn't get it. Yeah. Or if Biden didn't, if Biden did get it, it was you know essentially worthless because he's getting the rank and file anyway. Um, and so you do find news articles; they'll they'll find that UAW worker that that agrees with Trump. They exist. Not so many showed up at his rally last night, but they exist. Uh, but you got to keep in mind, it's not like Democrats have won every union voter in history. Republicans have generally gotten about 40% of the union household vote going back to 1972 when we have exit poll data. Um, Trump did better with union voters in Michigan in 2016 when you know, Obama romped with union voters in Michigan in 2012 when the auto bailout was the big issue and Romney had that New York Times op-ed, let Detroit go bankrupt. Uh, Obama used that like a club and beat Romney senseless in both Michigan uh, and helped eke out Ohio. Uh, that wasn't the issue in 2016. 
Trump is able to use culture war stuff and trade stuff. He makes inroads there. So the national number for Trump and unions is only a little bit better than Romney in 2012. It's 43% versus 40. In Michigan, he took a what was a 33-point margin in favor of Obama, narrowed it to 13 points against Hillary. That's a big difference. Uh, now, Biden does better than Hillary did in Michigan with union voters. Um, and nationally, Trump goes from 43 to 40, yeah. so more like an average. Well, this, and I'm sorry to, to interrupt. Um, sure. What was it Vivek said about interrupting? I can't remember. <laughs> but anyway, um, I do want to just put, I, I just want to put a pin in that. But yeah. this, this issue obviously affects Michigan. Right, which is a key key state in the electoral college, but you know Biden is out there, kind of literally cheering for the the labor union, saying like, okay, you guys need this forty percent raise or whatever. Right. The longer this strike goes on, it. I mean, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is going to raise the cost of buying a car. It's going to raise the cost of buying used cars. That is going to contribute to inflation. And uh, not great for Joe Biden in general, like in the general uh, in the economy. Well, I assume there is a scenario where this just you know goes off the rails and things are very bad. I think more likely is there will be a resolution. They're not going to strike forever. Uh, the, the the UAW strike for only lasts so long. Um, they 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 want a deal. The automakers want a deal. They don't want this to go on forever. Uh, I don't know if, you know, Sean Fain, clearly a very confrontational figure. They were definitely, I think, hot to strike, hot to show there's a new there's a new sheriff in town with the UAW. Uh, maybe he has an end game in mind where he knows exactly what he's willing to accept. Uh, and just waiting to get to that point, or maybe he doesn't have an end game. He just wanted to see how this would go and see how much leverage he would get out of it. Uh, needs to decide what his bottom line is. That that is, is unclear to me. Uh, but I suspect there is there's a middle ground has to be found. They, they 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 literally will all kill each other if they don't find it. And. Biden is good at negotiations. Biden is good at compromising. I mean, I'm not, he's not literally in the room, but I'm sure he's talking to the UAW and the big three executives fairly regularly is my, my guess. Uh, and obviously he has an interest in having this be resolved. Uh, so from my vantage point, there will be a resolution. And the question is, how much will auto workers be happy with that resolution? I would suspect that whatever it is, the UAW leadership is going to say it's fantastic. <laughs> Even if it's like not anywhere close to 40%, they're going to say, we asked for a lot. We moved the needle. We showed that this that we we had, uh, we had are stronger together. Uh, and we got a great deal for you guys. Now, maybe Trump comes in and says, this deal sucks and your jobs are all going to fall apart tomorrow. You should hate this deal and hate your leadership for making this deal. You know, that part I don't know, uh, but I think there's an opportunity for Biden here to say, we came, 
we came together. We came together as a nation. We came together as an industry. American cars are great. We're going to win the future. We're not going to let China own electric vehicles. Um, we're going to make sure everybody shares in this prosperity like we did you know, uh, 10 years ago with, with the bailout. And if the workers believe it, and the workers are, I mean, they're going to get some kind of raise. I mean, I mean, the the big they have already offered a raise. It's just not forty percent, so they're going to get a raise out of this. Uh, so there's a good chance they're going to say, you know what, this this worked out for us. And then Trump's on the side being a naysayer. That not might not be helpful for him. Again, he'll get someone to believe him in the rank and file because Republicans always get someone. They always get around 40% or so. The question is, does he get more than the average, more than he got in 2020? And anecdotes aren't going to tell us that. So uh, I guess before we wrap it up, uh, and by the way, let me just say, I don't think we're going to talk this week about the looming government shutdown. I assume next week we will be <laughs> in a government shutdown. Though probably uh Maybe even less likely to be resolved soon than than this UAW. Well, I, mean, I, I would not be shocked if we have a shutdown and it is resolved by the time we talk next week. I, I wouldn't, I'm not predicting it, but it wouldn't shock oh, me. Interesting. Okay. You're well, more just, optimistic. Just, just, to say, just to do it quickly here. Okay. Um, You're more optimistic than me, Bill. But well, I believe that Kevin McCarthy knows that shutdowns are stupid. And doesn't want to be in one. And the only way for a shutdown to be prevented or to end is to have a bipartisan deal with Democrats that largely adheres to the budget deal that he agreed to with Joe Biden this in the spring. Um, he has to know that. he's He, he is not a moron. Uh, but I think he believes that he probably has to go over the edge and have a little bit of a shutdown to say, I tried everything I could. I tried to organize a Republican-only deal in the House and get that passed. Maybe he gets it by, by then. So either he gets it, and then they're having a negotiation with the Senate over the particulars, or he doesn't get it, and he has even less leverage. But either way, the end game is to negotiate with Democrats in the Senate over a final deal that is going to involve Democratic votes in the House and not okay. have Matt Gates be on board. The question and is, that will lead to the motion to vacate the chair, obviously. But he wants to be in a, the best position to beat that back. And so if he can say, look, I did everything I could to maximize my leverage before the final deal, don't be mad at me that these, ja the, 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 these jackasses can't accept reality. Uh, if he does it before the shutdown, maybe he can't make that case as readily as he can if after a few days of shutdown. But I can't see why three days of shutdown is somehow more uh, is less appealing than like two weeks of shutdown. Uh, so he might get to that point quickly after the shutdown first occurs. Yeah, I mean, it could happen. I guess one argument is that there won't be enough time for anyone to feel pain, and so um, the lesson won't have been learned. But on the other hand. If if McCarthy, you know, postpones, um, then I guess it just makes him look weaker uh, that he finally caved or something. So uh, you may be right. You may be right. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. This ends with a bipartisan deal. That is the only way this ends. And the only question is how much shutdown needs to be has to happen first before we get to that point. And so I. I can't tell you with certainty that it's three days and not 21 days, um, but it seems well, to me stupid to have it go longer than it needs to go on when you when you know what the end point is. 
What bugs me is how someone like Matt Gates does stuff like this all the time, never wins. It's, it always loses, right? Everything he does. He loses policy. Loses. But, he, but, but to use Matt, Lang, Matt, Matt Lewis uh, parlance, he wins with attention. That's what annoys me. All he does is fail forward constantly. It's every stunt, every gambit fails. He, like, for example, trying to stop McCarthy from being speaker the first time. I mean, which he pushed and pushed and pushed until he caved, but then acted as if like he won when he really did it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, which was exposed with the debt limit deal. Uh, and he's still trying to act as if that deal didn't happen. And that somehow he has some deal that, that should be adhered to from January and McCarthy is, is reneging on. But the rumor is that he wants to run for governor uh, and being the absolute biggest pain thorn in the side of the establishment and the leadership only helps him maintain a plurality in theory for Republican yeah. primary for governor. So he, he, I think he's fine with things working out that way because it doesn't hurt his future prospects. It's just annoying to watch people fail forward constantly. They, they cause trouble, they cave, they never, never advance the ball, never win. And yet they get rewarded for it. And this perverse, perverse business that we, uh, have chosen. Bill, uh, anything you want to plug? Uh, just check out my piece at the monthly about the electric vehicle <clears throat> debate between Biden and Trump. Uh, what do you got, Matt? Well, I want, I, I wrote a piece about the debate, but you know, that's fleeting. Uh, I want to recommend a piece I wrote this week at the Daily Beast that did not get that much attention, <clears throat> but I think it's an interesting kind of think piece. And it looks at how Joe Biden and Donald Trump are effectively tied uh, in the, you know, after everything, Donald Trump, four indictments, an insurrection, uh, rape, liable for rape, uh, two impeachments. And it's all tied up, ladies and gentlemen, all tied up. Um, And I use that as sort of a microcosm for the fact that we've been in this 50-50 nation for for decades now. And, um, you know, this harkens back to this this political commentator who had the theory about how there should be a sun party and a moon party. So during the time of FDR, the Democrats were the sun party. Mm-hmm. They were the dominant party. It kind of won the argument. And then Republicans kind of had to know their place during that mm-hmm. point. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like if you know your place, that's important because. As if both sides think they're losers, that leads to a different dynamic. Uh, apoc- they're apocalyptic, but they also think next one more year. We don't have to. We don't have to play ball. We don't have to compromise. We're going to win next year, right? Uh, during the Reagan era, the Republicans were the Sun Party. The Democrats were the Moon Party. And it turns out, competition, uh, as as Peter Thiel said, competition is for losers. Something like that. That was his quote. Something to that effect. Uh, he wasn't. He wasn't wrong. Um, it turns out it's healthier um, when we go through periods where one party kind of wins the argument. And now we've gone for many decades with each party thinking they're one election away from destruction and one election away from retaking the majority. And uh, and I argue that's led to a whole bunch of, of negative externalities. So check out that column. Mm-hmm. Um, I also interviewed uh, Jim Pethokoukis, who has a new book out called The Conservative Futurist, 
had him on my podcast. And so if you are a, you know, dystopian, if you're worried about transhumanism and uh, AI taking all of our gerbs, um, <laughs> then uh, this will talk you down. Listen to uh, Jim Pethokoukas. And by the way, you can get his book. It's out next week, The Conservative Futurist. All right. Very exciting. Uh, good to talk to you, Matt. And we'll good check you back to you. in the DMZ next week. See you then.